What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. And hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans, at home and out of work. The March jobs report showing a shocking 701,000 jobs lost, the worst report since 2009. And many say this number, as bad as it is, fails to capture the full extent of the ongoing economic blow we're experiencing. The stock market originally shrugged off the report to some extent, but we're now sitting near session lows. We're talking about declines of just under 2% for the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq this afternoon. Stocks are also unimpressed with oil, which continues its gains for a second straight day, although it too has come off the highs. And we're awaiting a key meeting with industry executives at the White House today. We'll have more on that in just a moment. But first, we do begin with more on this market action. Bob Bassani is here for us. Hi, Bob. And Kelly, this is one of those days where the L-shaped crowd is winning over the U-shaped crowd, the people who argue that the recovery is going to take longer than just a few months. And you can see that in the what's going on here in the intraday trading in Philly, really what's going on for the whole week here. You're looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average down here. The S&P is just off of the lows for the day. Believe it or not, this is not as volatile as some of the other days we've seen in the past few weeks. I just want to point out what some of the sectors are doing, because this is indicative of who's going to be the winners and losers here. Not a lot of winners, but banks or utilities, and of course, what's going on with the REITs this week. These are three groups that are going to be dramatically affected because they're the ones that might get hit if people decide to stop paying their mortgages or stop paying their utility bills. That's a major issue. And of course, retail is a big, big mess right now. Retail's down 10% this week. Banks are down 10%. Got a lot of new lows in retail, Hayes Brands, Nordstrom, Kohl's. It's hard to describe what the numbers are looking like here. Kohl's, for example, Kohl's was... $45 a month ago? Look at it. It's $11 now. Nordstrom was $40 one month ago. It's now a $12 stock. So this has been a simply catastrophic month overall for the retailers. Any good news here? It's a little calmer. I know that sounds unbelievable with the market down two or 300 points here, but we were moving in two and three percent swings throughout the week again today. A week and a half ago, we were five, six, seven percent daily intraday swings. And look at the VIX. It's now below 50. Haven't seen that since, oh, more than a month. So that's a little bit of good news. And hopefully things will calm down a little bit more. Market will flatten out a little bit sometime, maybe next week. Kelly, back to you. Bob, you know, we've seen this pattern for the last couple of months now with coronavirus. Where people don't want to be long and exposed to the market into the weekend because they just don't know what the news flow will bring. Do you think that's starting to people are getting more comfortable with the numbers as bad as they are? We have projections now. For the most part, we kind of know what we're expecting. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that's changed at all or is it still pretty risky? You'll notice on the the terrible numbers, I mean, we were off by magnitudes on the jobs number this morning, and the market actually went up on this. Uh, Part of this is because people are now, the the whisper numbers are now, back to those old whisper numbers, that are much worse than the actual numbers that people are making guesses at. And then there's the whole crowd that the, the worse the numbers, the better, because that means more federal aid, it means more federal reserve, more QE down the road. We're back to the old bad is is good. Really bad is even better story. It's that perverse way we had back in 2008 and 2009 about 
thinking about the markets. Kelly. All right, Bob, we appreciated Bob Bassani today. The record-setting pace of job growth coming to an end with that decline of more than 700,000 jobs in March. Steve Leisman has been combing through the numbers all day, Steve, and this was supposed to be before the worst of the shutdowns hit. Yeah, uh, it, it did surprise people with how much of the downturn was captured. Uh, but, of course, uh, everybody is still saying that uh, there's a lot more to come. Uh, and this is just the leading edge. It's a bit like a hurricane is coming. And these are the, just the first dark clouds that, that are hitting. But inside the numbers, there is some information about the industries that we expect to be to be hit hard and will be hit harder yet. Uh, take a look at the list by industry. I'll give you some details on what's inside that. The leisure hospitality, 459,000 lo job losses in that industry there. Uh, the key right there is that has accommodation in it. Uh, and, and there's probably more to come in that business. Healthcare and social assistance, what's that? Doctors and dentists' office shut down. In addition, the social assistance part, that's child care. That's shut down as well. Professional business services, what's that? Employment is inside that number right there. Employment services, temporary help is inside there, along with say, the janitorial services. Retail, you can expect much more there. And construction, also a lot of projects shutting down. There's other ways that it hit the data. We're going to look at the household survey right now. One and a half million additional people working part-time for economic reasons. In other words, they want full-time work. One million more people on temporary layoff. 252,000 people saying they're not at work due to illness and a decline of 250,000 in the employed. There was other stuff in there that's, that tells you that it could be worse. Very low response rate on both sides, on the employer side and on the household survey. The surveyors, Kelly, couldn't get out to do the surveys. It was dangerous for them. There was misclassification that probably added a percentage point. And just one more personal note here, Kelly. Inside the leisure hospitality is arts and entertainment. Musicians, they're also losing their jobs. So see if you can think about a way to help a musician who's lost work. I know, Steve. You, I mean, you guys can't do shows right now, right? There's nothing going on. We can't do shows, but we but we have day jobs. There are guys out there who have night jobs, and that, that's their business. And I'm just making a plea to help those. There, a lot of people are doing live streams where they're raising money either for themselves or for charity. So maybe you could tune in and donate some money that way. That's a great idea, actually. All right, Steve, thanks very much. Steve Leisman. Those larger-than-expected job losses are raising alarms among many economists. My next guest says if people don't start to think they're going back to work soon, we're risking a significant breakdown in the social order and in future potential growth. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Larry Lindsay. He is the CEO of the Lindsay Group and former director of the National Economic Council under President George W. Bush. Larry, I, you know, I, I thought your point was uh, poignant. I mean, it certainly sums up the urgency, I think, in trying to get these government programs right. But also, I think there's a big part of this that is communication and communication that this economy is coming back and people aren't going to be permanently out of work. Yeah, I think we need that a lot. Uh, we forget about the psychological aspects of this. Uh, economists are probably more guilty than most because we always talk in terms of numbers. But um, there's a lot of economic evidence that higher unemployment leads to more domestic violence, more alcoholism, more drug abuse, and more suicides. And um, there was a, another study. Uh, it's, it's not a perfect study, but it's good round numbers in it uh, by AP that found that 10% higher unemployment rate for a sustained period reduces life expectancy by a year and a half. Uh, that's an enormous, enormous reduction. Um, it leads to literally hundreds of thousands more deaths every year. So continuing the current lockdown for an extended period 
and damaging the economy means losing lives and not just losing money. But you're not one of those who says that we need to, you know, go back to work, so to speak, right? You're just saying we need to understand that shutting things down for a long period of time carries its own risks, including health and mortality risks. Uh, yes, and but I think we also um, need to realize that we can't do this for months and months and months. So I think that it would make sense to uh, use a, to begin, I'm stress that word, begin, a phased reopening of the economy on a common sense basis starting at the end of April. Uh, but people have already been in lockdown, depending on where you live, between two and four weeks. And that would be another four weeks on top of that. That's a long time to be cooped up and not in your usual, um, your usual lifestyle. Um, that doesn't mean everyone has to go back to work right away. I'm certainly not one who believes that. But um, just being able to do more things and you know, have relatively healthy people um, the people who, you know, don't have risk, high risk factors be able to go back to work, I think would be important. And it would send an important psychological sim- symbol. You know, one of the things I- I'd love to see, for example, is to have the M- NBA get back to playing. That would, A, give us something to watch, although I'm not particularly a basketball fan, but it would give us the sense that life can return to normal. They don't have to play in front of a big stadium, but you know, they can play in a, in a high school gym if they, if they had to with TV cameras there. But things like that have to start to rehab, reopen and happen in order for us to feel life will be normal at some point. So you think, in other words, that we're reaching the point where the risk of reopening things, having those small group gatherings, sending people back to work is less great because maybe the healthcare systems can handle the strain. Maybe people are going to wear masks and be careful that they don't spread to you know, members, vulnerable members of the population. There will be some people who have to stay home. And I wonder about the example of China, where they've had a hard time in some cases convincing people to go back to work and the traffic uh, flow still looks anemic. I think that's right. I mean, once burned, twice shy, and none of us are going to rush back to work. Um, and I think that's something that the people who want to keep a shutdown longer need to remember. We don't want it to become assumed and a habit for people to just, you know, not go back to work. It's going to be very hard to recover and very hard for those people who don't go back to work. And we've got another problem, Kelly, if I can just pivot to that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the unemployment insurance program that was passed actually pays people more to stay home not working than they got at their previous job. I've never heard of any government anywhere doing something so foolish. It's basically uh, incentivizing the economy to stay closed longer and keeping people home longer, even when things have gotten back to normal. It makes no sense, and that's going to be another hurdle we're going to have to overcome. My guess is a lot of this will continue to get changed because we've never had to to try. I mean, you can go to the small business loans today that are going to be a work in progress and other things. I think the most important thing is people is for people to understand, if I act in good faith, will I be rewarded for that? In other words, if I'm a company and I'm trying to do the right thing, well, is that laying people off because they can get more money right now? Or is that keeping them on payroll because I'll get assistance, but I don't want to have to then keep them on forever because my demand might be down 30 percent in a year and I might not need the staff I once needed. I mean, it's tricky. 
I think it's very important uh, that uh, small businesses take advantage of this program. Um, we want them to keep their um, institutions and establishments running. It's a lot easier to, you know, reopen a semi-closed or, uh, or low-volume establishment than open one from scratch. So we want to keep them there. And we particularly want to keep workers engaged to the extent possible, even if there's a lot of working from home, even if there's a lot of social distancing, and even if you're in there just part-time. I think it's important for people um, to continue to feel like they're participating in the economy. Great, great points. Larry, thanks. Uh, We always appreciate your time. Thank Thank you very much, Kelly, for having me on. Larry Lindsay is CEO of the Lindsay Group. A lot of stuff to think about in there. It's going to be a tough time. Uh, We have some breaking news from the Department of Transportation. I believe let's go to Phil LeBeau for that. Phil? Kelly, because the Department of Transportation has received a couple of thousand complaints from travelers who have had flights canceled, but they've been unable to get a refund from the airline that canceled the flight. Well, the DOT is out today warning airlines, if somebody has a canceled flight, they are entitled to a refund on that ticket. A lot of airlines have been saying, well, maybe we'll give you a voucher and have been pushing back. Now the DOT is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you have to give a refund if uh, the customer requires it. Also today, Delta extending the ticket change waiver for up to two years. And Southwest extending the amount of time when people can use the money for a non-refundable ticket by up to a year. Kelly, back to you. Wow. All right. And again, the airline index uh, down about 4% on that uh, news today. Trying to work for the long, though, uh, long run, not necessarily the short term. Phil, we appreciate it. Phil LeBeau. Today's the first day, as we were just discussing, that small businesses can request cheap government loans to get through coronavirus. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin saying that by about noon, community banks had already processed nearly $900 million. But not everyone is able to get up and running today. Let's go to Kayla Tausche for the very latest. Kayla? Kelly, it's been a bumpy road for many banks trying to get online and many businesses queuing up for that aid. PNC, Wells Fargo, Synovus, many banks, their sites are saying these loans simply are not available yet. Bank of America is lending to prior loan customers. That has angered others. Chase's website crashed and the billion dollars that has been loaned so far is largely by community banks that are already SBA lenders. Two industry executives tell me all banks will likely not be online until the middle of next week. Connect One in New Jersey has so far uh, seen a thousand applications in the last week from its customers and its online subsidiary has demand for $2 billion in loans. I spoke to its CEO, Frank Sorrentino, earlier today about what he would say to all of those customers who are worried that there won't be enough money for them. Here's what he said. Don't worry. I I think the administration, our government, Congress, the SBA and everyone has made it crystal clear. This is an incredibly important program that we're here to support the economy. The banks are going to be here to support the economy. Sorrentino is just waiting on SBA confirmation to get that money to his customers. Meanwhile, today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggested that small businesses would need more. This $2 trillion package is just a down payment on eventual needs. But at the White House, Larry Kudlow said it's still too soon to tell. The key right now is executing this package. It's a gigantic package. covers enormous ground. and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say yes or no. Our job is to execute. Then let's take a look at this. Then give it three, four, five weeks, six weeks before we jump into something new. 
Kelly, this is an impossibly heavy lift. It's an unprecedented program. Of course, there will be hiccups, uh, but it's also unprecedented, the needs that many of these small businesses have. Yeah, Bank of America was up and running today, although, Kayla, there's some blowback from Senator Ruby. I don't know if you can uh, tell us what that's about. And also, J.P. Morgan, according to our Wilfred Frost, has just gone live with its lending program, too. Well, the backlash from Senator Rubio was he posted a, a video on Twitter where he said the government was here for the banks back in the last financial crisis and we gave you guys taxpayer funded bailouts and you need to be there for your customers. That was in response to the fact that Bank of America has prioritized its small business customers who have already taken out a loan with the company. And that's a way that Bank of America can underwrite these loans more quickly. They have to do less due diligence on those loans. CEO Brian Moynihan today on CNBC said that after those loans are processed, then they'll get to uh, small business customers who have a checking or credit card relationship, and then they'll evaluate new customers after that. They have to figure out a priority queue to sort this through, Kelly, and especially for the big banks where they're still having to, um, to comply with a lot of these regulations. Uh, they're trying to find a way to do this uh, in the most seamless way. It's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because not being online would anger customers, too. Absolutely. It's a tough one, uh, like all of this. Kayla, thanks. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche with the latest there. Well, tune in tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time for a CNBC special report, The Path Forward, Your Business. The prophet himself, Marcus Limonis, will address the challenges facing these small and independent businesses. Tweet us your questions using hashtag CNBC Path Forward. Coming up, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi telling our Jim Cramer that the government action so far is not enough and says it's just a down payment. What more do we need, we'll ask. Plus, it's uh, been a two-day rally that for oil, but it's still down about 55 percent this year. Now, major energy CEOs are heading to the White House to lay out their needs amid this downturn. We'll look at what to expect. And as we go to break, here's a look at this week's top Dow performers. Pfizer, Walmart, Chevron, J&J and Caterpillar all in the green. Caterpillar up more than 7 percent. We'll be right back. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you get serious? Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Might not feel like it, but the market is calming down here in April so far. The Dow's point range this week is about half of what it's been recently, but still almost three times what it was at the start of the year. For more, I'm joined by Jamie Cox. He's managing partner at Harris Financial Group. And Charles Babrinskoy is vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Welcome to you both. Um, Charlie, I don't know if you heard Larry Lindsay's comments a moment ago um, or would want to respond to the idea that it's doing more harm than good to keep the economy shut down right now. You know, I've said that to you before, Kelly, and, and I have to be careful in saying that because we don't want to pretend to be medical experts, but there absolutely is a trade-off. Closing down the economy has huge negative impacts on the health of individuals. There's no study, there's no fact, there's no hypothesis that's more well-documented that unemployment, negative economic effects cause depression, cause higher suicide rates, um, we, there, there are trade-offs here. And so I understand how government officials, in order to increase compliance with stay-at-home, want to say scary things. I get that. But at some point, we are going to have to reopen this economy. Well, scary is certainly uh, what we're seeing in the unemployment numbers right now. 
And I think what everyone's surprised by is that the layoffs were so bad last month in the survey week. And even if people were answering and sort of knew it had gotten worse by the time they answered the following week, you know what I'm saying? We, there's kind of this projection into the future effect. But the numbers, no matter how you slice them, Charlie, are pretty dismal. Um, where yeah. does that leave you when you try to figure out what to do with your clients' portfolios? Yeah, so my view, Kelly, is that we are right now at peak bad news. The next two weeks are peak bad news. I do a lot of, I've invested in some health clubs, uh, in restaurants and other institutions. They all let people go thinking it was better for them to put them on unemployment. They plan to hire those people back once they have the go-ahead to do so. So my opinion, you're going to see the numbers are going to be worse uh, right now in terms of unemployment. But I think on this topic, we will actually see a V-shaped recovery with a lot of people being rehired after we get the okay. Jamie, what's your point of view? Do you have to have a point of view on this in order to invest? Or are there ways to kind of, you know, position based on either value uh, and some of the incredible price movements that we've seen or on secular growth stories, Zoom comes to mind? Yeah, there are so many things that are down, Kelly. I mean, if you look at energy, for example, I keep trying to ask myself, when is there going to be if I if I'm going to buy an integrated oil company, when am I when am I going to buy one if I can't buy it when there's an oil price war, which is cratered prices combined with a 30 percent or, or more, you know, d- demand destruction. So I, I think that, you know, people could look at that and objectively say, you know what, maybe maybe now it's time to nibble a little bit in a Royal Dutch Shell or an ExxonMobil or something like that and take a position in a company that's well capitalized, one that it has plenty of interest coverage. These are these are the type of things that you try to do if you're if you have some cash that you are trying to deploy. But a lot of people are doing other things that are more financial planning oriented, like doing Roth conversions, Mm -hmm. making alterations to their portfolios to try to take advantage of some of the declines in prices so they can, you know, manage the recovery in a a non-taxable account on the other side. I see a lot of that going on right now. Yeah, Roth conversion could make a lot of sense right now. You also are looking at companies that might pay a similar dividend yield but have very different interest coverage. So Daimler, for example, uh, pays out around the same as Ford but has 14 times the interest coverage versus two and a half times for Ford. Or Procter & Gamble and Clorox both have a two and a half percent dividend yield but Proctor has a 30 uh, times interest covered. Clorox is 14. So in other words, you're saying you, you and I, we've heard this theme before. You can't really go sectors. You kind of have to go company by company. Yeah, this is this is one of those times that stock picking does matter and, and understanding the companies you own will pay off. I mean, the, the pair that you mentioned a minute ago, Proctor and Clorox, maybe have reversed a little bit because of the circumstances that we're in. But if you take a look at maybe a longer term view and not look at it as a sanitation play, uh, Procter & Gamble is a better company to own, and you can pick it up at a discount relative to Clorox. So I think that's kind of what a lot of investors need to be doing and concentrating on, rather than concentrating on data that we know are bad, and we know are going to get a little bit worse until the only data point that matters changes, and that's when the number of people in the country are no longer dying or, or the, we hit that crest in a coronavirus deaths, and that's going to make a huge difference to everything, whether we restart back yeah. when people are, you know, it's going to make a huge difference. But all these data that we see right now are horrible, but looking through it, that's why you have to pay attention to these metrics and buy these companies when, in, in, on, one, on one off instead of just buying in the sector. Charlie, quick final word. I know you like Zimmer Biohealth. We're trying to find companies that are going to be fine, that, that are going to have pent-up demand. 
Zimmer by, uh, is a name we love. They have replaceable hips and knees. People are clearly not doing that kind of elective surgery today. Their business is going to be down. But those surgeries are being put off, not canceled. They're going to happen. Zimmer is very well positioned long term. All right. Charles Berbrinskoy, Jamie Cox, thank you this afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, oil executives are heading to the White House as the energy industry struggles with oversupply and crater demand. But there's a big disagreement within the sector on the best policy approach. We will explore that. Plus, many Americans are anxiously awaiting their stimulus checks. We'll look at who's eligible and how much they'll get. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude is rebounding today by nearly 7 percent, but it's off its session highs. This follows its single biggest rally ever yesterday, and it's up about 26 percent this week. Breaking news in the past hour, Russian President Vladimir Putin says a reduction of 10 million barrels a day in global production is possible. This news comes as energy executives are at the White House. Eamon Javers has more for us. Eamon. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. That Putin headline crossed within the past 45 minutes or so. Not clear whether he's saying, though, global production or how much of that Russia is committing to contribute to. Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council director, was just out on the White House driveway earlier today talking to reporters about what the president thinks he heard in what Kudlow describes as multiple conversations now with Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. Here's what he said. Production cuts under discussion have been President Trump uh, talking on a number of occasions with um, President Putin uh, and, uh, and MBS of Saudi Arabia. And President, believe, President Trump believes that they have given uh, agreement and commitments to, you know, ending their spat. So Kudlow there saying that the president believes that he has a commitment from those two leaders to end their spat. Not clear how that plays into the Putin comments about a global reduction in production. All of that sets the table, Kelly, for this meeting in about an hour, an hour and a half's time at the White House with oil industry executives. Uh, here's what I'm told is going to be on the agenda from people who are familiar with this. One of the things that the big companies are going to ask for is they don't want to see 
tariffs on Saudi oil. Some of the smaller players do. Uh, and so that's going to divide the industry a little bit. There's also this question of royalty and leasing relief uh, for drilling on federal lands. There's the possibility of talking about storing excess re reserves in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, Jones Act waivers are also on the table. And Kelly, I'm also told one of the things that might be discussed here today is the idea of getting access to the Fed's new leasing program, uh, the Fed's, Fed's new lending program, I should say. That's an interesting possibility. We'll see how that all plays out at three o'clock. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Eamon, thanks. Eamon Javers. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the state of the oil markets. Fred Kemp is president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, welcome, because the uh, only way to figure out where the oil price goes from here is to analyze this a concord or lack thereof between the U.S., Russia and Saudi, I guess. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation. You have uh, three alpha males. So President Trump, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, and President Putin. And they all have vastly different interests in this, but they all have an interest in the price going up. And so they need a way out of the situation. And it sounds as though the, the uh, President Trump has put himself in the middle of this as, as a moderator and has navigated a way forward. Uh, the real question is, what is the U.S. giving? Because uh, President Putin believes it's a global situation and the U.S. has to give something as well. Uh, we can't uh, compel our companies to do things in the way that the Saudis and, and the Russians can. Uh, one of the things we're hearing, but first of all, there is going to be an emergency OPEC plus meeting on Monday. Others are going to be invited to it. Unclear whether the U.S. is going to be at that meeting virtual meeting or not. Uh, the other thing that's been talked about, and this is really just a rumor, we haven't been able to confirm this, that there may be a shutdown in the Gulf of Mexico of production there. That's 1.8 uh, uh, million barrels a day. Uh, that could come close to helping get to the 10. Uh, that's U.S. production. It wouldn't be shut down as a production cut, but it would be shut down for coronavirus reasons. Uh, so one would be able to uh, skirt the issue whether or not the U.S. is joining OPEC as a de facto OPEC member making production cuts. Right. We're actually going to be speaking with the commissioner of the Texas Railroad Commission uh, in a couple of minutes about this very issue, Fred. So my question for you in the meantime is when you look at the headlines coming from Putin and from the energy minister Novak this morning, they really kind of talk about how it's Saudi Arabia's fault for negatively influencing the oil market, saying it's unfortunate that they announced uh, plans to boost oil production and that they're trying to get rid of shale producers. So is the U.S. going to be able, if, if Saudi's not on board with this idea, this, this you know, notion that the U.S. and Russia are negotiating a, a cut, then is there a deal? Well, they, everyone has different interests in this, uh, but I do think they're close to a deal. The question is, how big of a difference will this deal make? Uh, the uh, estimate for April is that some 20 million barrels a day have, have come, has come off uh, global production of 100 million barrels a day. It could be as much as 30 million barrels a day. So if you take 10 million barrels a day off the market, what difference does that really make? And they would have had to come to take market share off anyway because of uh, they're coming up uh, against limited storage. What's really interesting here is the lobbying of the shale producers, which seems to have shifted President Trump. President Trump early on was of the view that these lower oil market, oil prices were a tax cut. That's what the, he called them for the U.S. consumer. I think two things have intervened. Uh, one of them 
is uh, the loss of jobs and, and, and these shale producers who are lobbying him. And by the way, they've enlisted not as a paid lobbyist, but they enlisted as an interesting, interested party, the former energy secretary, Rick Perry, who's, who's close to the Saudis, but also former governor of Texas. So that's some of the pressure. And then the other part of the pressure is the election. Uh, Texas uh, is, uh, you know, the oil producing states uh, of the United States are, are, are not swing states by and large, but Texas could be. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting in this three-way scrum of Putin, MBS, and, and Trump is the other two do have an interest in Trump being reelected. Uh, they would not do well uh, with a President Joe Biden or as well as they've done with the President Trump. So final question, Fred, as these executives gather at the White House, what should we expect out of that meeting? Um, I think that there, there is some optics to this. I think the president wants to be showing he's in charge, showing that he is moderating this global crisis in the interest of these companies. Uh, uh, there may be some talk about uh, production cuts that aren't really production cuts. I'm really interested to hear what the Texas commissioner is going to say to you as they have about 40 percent of U.S. production. And would they be uh, interested in uh, in in joining the the global cuts, um, so I think they'll. But I do think they're going to steer away from tariffs. Uh, as as uh, as your reporter said, uh, the majors do not want tariffs. There are real differences between the majors and the independents in the room, and he's going to have to navigate those. All right, Fred. Thanks. It's good to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, Kelly. Fred Kemp of the Atlantic Council. Uh, let's mention uh, as we head to a break here. Well, first of all, we will be speaking with the Texas Railroad Commission, which has a ton of influence in terms of the oil market in Texas. Forty percent of U.S. production. Will they vote to curb production? We will speak to the commissioner ahead. Uh, in the meantime, millions of Americans are hoping to see a stimulus check in their bank account soon, but not everyone will be eligible. We've got the answers on who is next. As we head to break, the Dow is down more than 500 points right now. Just taking a, a leg lower. We're just under that level. Hanging on below 21,000. We'll have more in just a moment. Welcome back. Let's get a check on the markets right now. All the major averages lower after that rough jobs report this morning. We've continued to move to session lows as the day continues. A drop of 518 for the Dow was a 2.4% decline. Very similar declines for the S&P and the NASDAQ. And all 11 sectors of the S&P are again lower. That includes utilities, financials, communications, services. Uh, utilities, the biggest lagger, down 4% today. Over in the Dow, Boeing and Pfizer are your leaders. IBM, Caterpillar, and American Express are the laggards. Uh, Cat down 3%, as mentioned, and still about 7% on the week. And it's another weekday for airlines with red across that entire sector. American, United, and Southwest all with big declines, and casino stocks having a rough day, too. Wynn and MGM seeing losses of roughly 10%, increasing to about 12% now. And a look at shares of FedEx are also falling. The company pulled its guidance today and warned about taking government assistance. The shares are down nearly 7%. There are a few positives, though. Tesla is higher on those delivery numbers. Etsy is in the green after it posted strong sales. There's a Tesla hanging on to a gain of about 3% right now. Let's get the latest coronavirus headlines at this hour. Over to Wilfred Frost for that. Hi, Wilf. Hi, Kelly. So uh, good afternoon to you and everyone. Wisconsin still plans uh, on holding its primary next Tuesday, but a federal judge says the results must be withheld for another week until extended absentee balloting is complete on April 13th. Wisconsin is the only state that is holding its primary this month despite the pandemic. The spread of the coronavirus in Italy appears to be stabilizing with just under 4,600 new cases since yesterday. That's down slightly from the previous day and well below the record 6,500 on March 21st. 
Prince Charles officially opening a temporary hospital in London's Excel Centre. He did that remotely following his self-isolation after contracting the coronavirus. And Queen Elizabeth uh, also announcing she will deliver a rare TV address on the virus this Sunday. It's only the fifth such address she's made during her reign. As always, for more on the coronavirus, head to cnbc.com. Kelly? All right. Will, thanks. We'll see you soon. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says coronavirus stimulus checks could go out as early as Monday. But who actually qualifies and how much do they qualify for? Sharon Epperson has those answers for us. Sharon. Hey, Kelly, we've gotten hundreds of questions about this, and here's what you need to know. The IRS is going to use your 2018 or 2019 tax return to determine if you qualify for a stimulus payment, what they're calling an economic income payment. And if you're, if you're single, you'll be eligible to receive the full $1,200 payment if your adjusted gross income is less than $75,000. Now, if you made between $75,000 and $99,000, you're going to get a reduced payment. And if your income was over $99,000, you're not going to be eligible to get a check. Now, if you're a married couple, you'll fight, you file jointly, you'll get a $2,400 check. That is as long as your adjusted gross income was less than $150,000. If it's between $150,000 and $198,000, you'll get a reduced amount. And if you're over $198,000, then again, you don't qualify. For parents who have a qualifying child, and that means your child is under the age of 17, then you'll get a $500 payment for each child. And another important point to note here, this is not going to be taxable income. These payments are seen as an advanced refund on the taxes you're going to owe in 2020. And if it turns out that actually you're not due a tax refund next year, you still don't have to pay this money back. This is your money to keep. Advanced refund. Okay, that's super interesting. How long will it take to get a check, Sharon, if you're not getting the direct deposit? And, and is nobody going to have to pay this money back no matter what? Well, you're not going to have to pay the money back as, as long as what we've been told and what we've seen in legislation and talking to tax policy experts, as long as you qualify for it. In terms of getting that check, direct deposit is key. And so if you did that on your 2018 or 2019 return, that's great. If you did not, and you usually get um, a paper check if you get a, a, a refund or you've turned it in by paper, you will get it in the mail, but it could take a long time. According to what we're hearing right now, those checks may not start to go out until the first week in May. Whereas if you have direct deposit, the Treasury Secretary says the week of April 13th is likely when those checks will start to go into the direct deposit into bank account. All right. Well, Sharon, I don't think you guys are going to run out of reading material during this time. Yeah, not at all. Looks like you're at the local library. <laughs> We're coming to borrow a book from you, but that's not allowed. That's what happens when you have an author for a husband. You know, when you're when you that's have a right. prolific author in the house, that's what happens. <laughs> Sharon, it's good to see you. We appreciate good to it. See you too. For more uh, from Sharon about the CARES Act and what you might qualify for, go to cnbc.com/investinyou. And in just over an hour, the CEOs of some of the biggest oil companies will be at the White House speaking with the president. Up next, we'll talk to one of the most influential men in Texas when it comes to oil. And he's a regulator in charge of a commission I bet 99 percent of the country hadn't heard of till yesterday. The Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton will join us. The exchange will be right back. As we go, here's a look at the week's top S&P performers. Four energy names leading the pack on the sharp bounce back in oil, including Noble and Halliburton. We're back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to some of the big calls of the day. Goldman Sachs is upgrading Twitter to a buy with a $35 price target, up from just under 23 today. The firm says the recent sell-off has created an attractive entry point because new and returning users will see the value of the platform during these localized crises times. It could create future users that Twitter will be able to better monetize, they say. Meanwhile, B. Riley FBR is upgrading Lululemon to a buy with a $210 price target. Uh, Lulu today is trading down 2.5% to 180. Uh, The firm believes that Lulu will benefit as consumers continue to exercise at home. The retailer is offering free online workout classes that could increase loyalty and attract new customers. And Lulu should benefit, they say, from an increase in casual wear as consumers work from home and seek comfort. And finally, Rosenblatt initiating Peloton with a buy at a $42 price target. That's nearly 50% upside. They say Peloton is also positioned with an attractive business model that has economies of scale and an early mover advantage and that they should be a beneficiary from COVID-19 in the short term with gyms closed. Peloton has been holding up relatively well, and they're up just under 6% today. And we're just over an hour away from the president's roundtable meeting with executives from at least seven energy companies. This as the price of oil is coming off its best day ever, up 8% again today, and on pace for its best week since 1986. But again, we're down more than 50% for the year. My next guest says some producers in the Permian Basin are getting offers at $6 a barrel, and he predicts that could take the oil market up to two years to recover from the damage done by this outbreak. For more, I'm joined by Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton, one of three officials tasked with regulating oil and gas. And Ryan, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. The question on everybody's mind is, would Texas agree to cut production? If the president negotiates a international deal, which it seems like is in the works, and in fact, I'm sure you saw, I got a call from the Russian oil minister yesterday. And if us cutting would promote that or help get that deal done, then yes, I think that Texas would be supportive of that. Look like, do you guys have, there's three commissioners as I understand it. Uh, do you all have to agree to a vote on that? Um, does it mean quotas? Can it, you know, how formal of, of a decision would something like this be? It would be a formal decision, be a vote, and it would take two of the three of us to vote for it. Uh, the mechanism to do this has actually been in place in the state of Texas for nearly 100 years. Uh, back from the 1920s to the 1970s, Texas prorated its production and was actually the primary driver of global oil prices for those five decades. So we have a long case history. We have the mechanisms to do this. The question is, does it help get an international deal done? If so, we've got the, the mechanisms to do it. Well, some of the critics of this move say quotas in particular could help the weaker players in the oil patch and hurt the stronger ones. What is your response to that? Well, right now, you know, the, people talk about this being a market situation. Uh, the fact is, I don't, I don't know who's doing well in the oil business right now. And when you have demand destruction of 20 to 25 million barrels, this is not a normal market condition. I mean, if you believe this is a normal market, then apparently we have a 90% oversupply of restaurants in the United States. The fact is, we're not talking about normal market forces, so it's, going, it's not going to take a normal market response. Us looking at how to simply stabilize the oil business through this crisis so that those jobs remain and we can produce more oil in the future when demand comes back. That's got to be our top priority. People are also wondering if you could come up with an unconventional way of, of cutting or capping production. One of the things I've seen is requiring uh, companies to kind of um, agree to the natural gas uh, permitting that I know are not that greatly enforced right now. So in order to avoid nat gas flares, you know, 
having to do something like that could effectively shut production. The other thing I've seen is maybe uh, stopping offshore drilling. I mean, are there different levers that you can pull here? There are. There are different ways we could prorate. In the end, the Railroad Commission actually has a specific charge in Texas law, which is to prevent waste. And one of the criteria for preventing waste is looking at market demand. So if we want to follow our constitutional, Texas constitutional uh, prescribed powers, then we need to look at simply what the market is. Now, yes, we could we could say we're going to limit flaring. But just like earlier, some people have said, wait a minute, you may be disproportionately impacting stronger or weaker performers if we use flaring as the tool that's using a particular policy concern to affect a, an outcome that we may not want. So I would I would be hesitant to jump off into that and not simply stay focused on what is the market demand and how do we how do we share in that market reduction equally during this specific coronavirus downturn? Would you be comfortable with $42 oil? That's what Vladimir Putin earlier today said he would be satisfied with. I'll tell you this. I actually think, to be very blunt, that's high for now. I'm not trying to get I am not doing this to try to get the price of oil up. What I'm trying to do is keep it from crashing into the single digits. If you get down to if you get into the 20s, even even $30 a barrel, there are levels at which I believe that the U.S. producer can sustain, can operate, won't be comfortable, still have really cheap prices at the pump. But it will keep the massive amount of bankruptcies from going on if you know, storage fills up. At that point, there's just nowhere to put the oil, which is the track we're on right now. Reiner, is Texas joining OPEC? No, <laughs> that will not be the case. This will be part of a singular deal if we're following the president's lead on this. If he decides that we need to do something, I got, a, as I said, got the call from Russia yesterday. If this is part of that international agreement, in light of the fact that we're in arguably the worst economic pandemic in mankind's history, then, yeah, we, we will participate in extraordinary measures due to those extraordinary circumstances. I don't see us having a long term role with OPEC at all. All right. Ryan, thanks for your time today and for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Ryan Sitton of the Texas, yes, Railroad Commission. Learning a lot lately. Coming up, it's been another volatile week for these markets. We've had moves of more than 900 points to the downside and more than 600 to the upside. We're going to look at what's on tap for next week. Our breaking news coverage of these markets does continue right after this. The Dow's down 485. Welcome back. Another volatile day for stocks. The Dow's down just under 500 points right now, and we're on pace to close out the third negative week out of the past four. My next guest says this volatility is far from over. Kevin Mond is here. He's president and chief investment officer of Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. Uh, Kevin, welcome. So how do you ride out uh, these times? I think what the main focus for investors is right now is a focus on quality. Certainly, we received a tremendous amount of response from the federal and our federal government. But, Kelly, that's not going to be enough to stave off session. It can limit the but it's not going to prevent it. So how do investors position their portfolios to take advantage of a recessionary period? We think the focus is on quality, both equities and internal uh, Kevin, just you're breaking up a little bit, so I'm going to have you repeat the last piece of that. It sounded like you said you're looking for good quality equities and fixed income. Could you give some examples? So, I mean, companies that have strong balance sheets, low debt-to-asset ratios, and have a high Altman Z-score. Many may be familiar with an Altman Z-score. That actually shows the likelihood of a company declaring bankruptcy over the next two years. Their Altman Z-scores have a lower problem declaring bankruptcy. So that's certainly an area yeah. that investors should Kevin, focus on. Uh, 
apologies. Uh, again, the audio quality, for the most part, we're doing pretty good uh, here these days, but we'll get you back when we can just clear that up a little bit, uh, if that's all right. Kevin Mon joining us from Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.